we've been talking about discerning the voice of God, hearing from the Lord, knowing that God is a speaking God. Amen? He's a God that is directing our paths and wanting to minister to our hearts. And uh, bless your hearts for having to come listen to this. Sound awful. It's just getting worse. I sit in Sunday school and I told April, I said, I don't know if I'm going to make it through the second service. So uh, hang with me. I mean, God must be wanting to do something today because our voices are bad. My strap came apart while I was playing. It just dropped. I'm like, I was playing like one of those, uh, uh, what do they call them, the little, the, like the guys that play the flamenco guitars in Spain where they're holding the guitar and playing it. Mariachi, there we go. I kind of became a mariachi guy there for a little bit. So we've been talking about discerning the voice of God. And there's a lot of voices in this world. There's a lot of uh, voices that will tell you multiple things. A lot of people that have opinions. Amen? Everybody's got an opinion. Don't they? And they all stink. Uh, you guys know the old saying, opinions are like armpits. Everybody's got them and they all stink. Isn't that right? There's other versions of that too, but don't repeat those. There's a lot of opinions out there. And uh, we've got to be able to discern what God's saying. And so we've been talking about that. We've been talking about the power of God, that when he speaks into a situation, it brings change. Uh, we talked last week about listening to the voice of God, and that's a definition of the character of his sheep, that when he speaks, the sheep actually listen, and they do something. They follow him, and he knows us. So it sounds really good, but over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to go through the, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And, and I'm going to do this probably a little bit differently than a lot of people have done it in the past, a lot of people try to say, well, Pastor Bob, the only way you can look at the seven churches is it's a symbol of the church as a whole and God doing this. Oh, Pastor Bob, it's a, it's a, a time thing where you go through each church represents a certain part of church history and this and then they do all this stuff. All I'm going to do is the fact is, is that Jesus was talking, okay? We're talking about hearing the voice of God, right? Now what we're talking about, he was talking to these churches. These are real churches, specific churches that had their time in history where they were in these strategic places, they were effective, God was ministering to the individuals, real people, everybody say real people, real people like you and me in these churches, in real communities, in in their day and age, and he ministered to them and ministered through them, and each church had its own characteristic, and each church had its own struggles and its own victories, can I get in, just like every church in town, amen, we got our own struggles and our own victories, and we're all just maybe a little bit different at times, but we all serve the same Jesus. We do. It's okay. I had a minister a long time ago tell me that they couldn't pray together because we weren't the same denomination. I said, oh, but our parishioners are family members, and they can go sit at a basketball game and cheer the same Covington Trojans on, but the pastors can't get together and pray? Good point. We all are serving this God. We're serving Jesus Christ. And in these letters, there's more things than this, but you'll find that when God speaks to us, He speaks words of affirmation. Do you know that God placed within you and I wonderful qualities 
that he loves to see come forth out of us, whether it's an infectious smile, whether it's a joyful attitude, a giving spirit, there are things that God places in us that when we act upon those things, when he speaks to us, he's going to affirm us. You're doing a great job in that area. I say affirmation first because I I grew up a long time thinking that God never had anything good to say to me. I couldn't find anything good in myself, so why would God, who really knows me, have anything good to say to me? I actually have some in my pocket. I'll probably have to spit it out because I don't know if I can preach and suck on a throat lozenger at the same time. I thought God didn't have anything good to say to me. But the truth of the matter is, folks, listen, when you're listening for God, don't ignore a voice of affirmation because God is a loving Father who wants to build you up. He wants to build you up in the things that He sees being done through your life that lines up with His Word. Even, yes, when there's times that there's sin in your life, He's definitely going to affirm the good things you're doing. We'll see this here in a minute. But I used to think God's not going to say anything good to me. He doesn't have anything good to say to me. That's not true. He rebukes. God is not one that's going to allow us to remain in our sin. If we've done something silly, if we've done something ignorant, if we've done something selfish, he's going to say, hey, that was silly, ignorant, or selfish. Stop it. God's not going to affirm you so much that he ignores your sin and tells you that your sin is okay. He's not going to do that. That's not God. He's going to always call us to repentance. Now, you say, always, Pastor Bob, I repented once, and that's when I got saved. Well, congratulations. Uh, If you're saved, then you're going to be in a constant state of repentance. You say, what does that mean? When I came to the altar and I give my life to Christ, I repented of some very specific, very obvious sins in my life. But then as I began to follow Christ and pursue Him and walk down that path that He was leading me on, I began to discover more issues that I didn't realize was that bad. Stuff I'd rationalized that I had to turn away and I had to repent of. So when God speaks to us, he's always going to lead us into deeper levels of repentance. Always. Always going to take us deeper. And that's what the purpose of a rebuke is for. And then encouragement. He's going to encourage us. He's going to tell us that we're able to get things done. He's going to tell us that we can do this. He is going to tell us to persevere. All through the scripture, you see over and over and over where scripture is talking about spurring one another on, encouraging one another, these types of things. God is going to speak to us personally through other individuals and encourage us as well. And God is always going to bring us to a promise that we are to obey. If we obey him, there's promises. And he's going to speak to us promises. So as we go through these seven letters, you're going to see these things and more, okay? Where God's speaking to the same people, And he'll give an affirmation, and then he'll give a call to repentance, and then he'll give an encouragement to overcome, and then he'll give a warning that if you don't... (laughs) So so God, when he speaks to us, is a lot like our parents. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something. I love you, but if you don't stop it, I'm going to send you to see Jesus right now. I love you. You did a great job in your game. I'm proud of you. You, you. you kept your hands up before you swing the bat. You stepped toward the pitcher, not out of the batter's box. I'm so proud of you for overcoming those things. But let me talk to you about something else. Your attitude. Um, when you got thrown out at first, I saw you toss your helmet on the ground. If you do that again, I'm coming out on the field and I'm whooping you myself. 
It's that, it's that parenting mentality that can say, you're doing so great in this area, but here's something we need to work on. When God speaks to us, that's how he speaks. And that's what he wants to teach us and show us. So let's, let's look at our first one here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This, this uh, first letter here to the church of Ephesus, Jesus is saying, there's no question who it is that's speaking. Earlier in chapter 1, we have a definition of Jesus where he is walking among the lampstands. The lampstands are the church. The churches are represented the lampstands. In his hand are the stars, which are referred to the angels of the church. Some think they're the pastors. Some think they're a specific ministering angel. Doesn't matter. We're focusing on Jesus speaking right now, okay? So the, the lampstand represents the church. Where is the lampstand located? Normally in the temple. In the temple, in the Jewish temple, the lampstand was placed inside the holy place. This was the place where we talked about last week about Samuel. He was laying there, and he heard the Lord speak to him. The lamp of God had not gone out. This lamp was to continue to burn. This lamp had to be tended to and made sure it was burning at all times. He was laying there, and this was the place of communion. The temple or the tabernacle was set up like this. It was kind of a, a rectangular shape, and it was cut in half as if two perfect cubes. Inside of one side of the cube was the Holy of Holies, where we just sang about the Shekinah glory of God. The very visible presence of God was behind the curtain on one side of it. And on the other side is where the priest could go in and minister. That's where the lampstand was. This lampstand represents the presence of God and all of these things. But our lives, we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning within us, there is a place where we dwell. And there is a place where God can dwell, and the two can commune together. Okay, his presence. So when he's talking about this lampstand, you could preach a whole series just about it. But when he's talking about this lampstand, he's got the churches represented as a lampstand, a burning light in a community. Amen? And he, Jesus, is walking among them. Now get this. When we show up at church, he's walking among us. So many people come in the doors of a building and they forget that. That if a church is going to obey, if a church is going to teach the word, if a church is going to pursue the Great Commission, that Jesus Christ is walking among them. And us as a personal tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, He is walking among us in our lives all day long. Corporately, He's walking among us and personally, He's walking among us. Amen? That's good news. This is the one that's speaking to us today. This is the one that is being clear. We have to always remember that this is not just a gathering place, but a place where God is moving and working by his Holy Spirit. So, first of all, in this letter, God knows. Look at it. I know your deeds. 
Isn't it nice to know that God knows? He sees it. Sunday school teacher that shows up early and works hard every week, no pay for it, got screaming snot-nosed kids. And to get even with their parents, you fill them full of chocolate and send them out. (laughs) God sees your work, sees your effort. Those of us that are working hard in our jobs and ministering and showing Christ to our coworkers, He sees your hard work. He knows. He's walking among you every single day. God sees what is done in private, and He will reward us openly. So He commends the church of Ephesus for their hard work. How many of us know the hard work is something that's commendable? It may be one of those things that where our culture seems to be losing a little bit, but hard work is a commendable thing. He commends them for their zeal, for the word, and for doctrine. They couldn't stand wicked people, and they would test others by the word. Commended them for their faithfulness. In all accounts, you look at this church and you think, wow, they've got it together from the outside in. These people are doing the work. These people have got it figured out. But the problem is, he says, you have forsaken your first love. He said, I've got this one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. Now stop for just a second. A church that is doing the work but has forsaken their first love is a church that is in trouble. And they don't know it yet. It would be like a marriage where the husband and the wife don't talk anymore And they think if I go to work and I work hard and come home, that ought to be enough. And the wife says, well, I'm doing this and this. I'm working this job. I'm taking the kids there. I do his nasty socks and underwear. That ought to be enough. Has anybody else ever had those arguments and conversations before? We know there's a problem and we know we've forsaken the communion with our first love when the first words out of our mouth is, look. What do you expect out of me? I go to work every day. I work hard. I come home. I pay the bills. I do this, 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 and this, X, Y, Z. And why are you always so mad at me? Mad at you? You don't do anything around here. I'm cleaning up this and that. And then pretty soon, we're we're trying to challenge each other to love each other by what we've been doing, by working hard around everything else. And what God is saying is, is you can work hard all you want to. Those are commendable things. But you are not in fellowship with me. A church can get caught up in ministry after ministry and activity after activity. Folks, if we are so busy about doing our ministry things and never connect ourselves with Christ personally in the word or in prayer, we are in desperate trouble. We talked about it last week and we talked about how uh, private devotions and personal devotions are so vitally important in our lives because distractions will pull us away. They had lost sight of their first love. Ephesus was birthed out of a great revival. People were saved, transformed, the community responded by burning their witchcraft books. It was a place of great evangelism, great conflict, great deliverance. Demons were cast out, a place where Jesus was glorified and signs and wonders were common. The things that Ephesus was commended for were good, but the things that they were doing now had taken place of what they had been doing before. When a church, we're like 82 years old here, something like that. 
83, maybe 84, this church. And when you get to be that age, it's easy to lose sight of what you came from. And it's easy for us as individuals, when we get saved and 20 years down the road, we get stuck in a rut. And we forget the moment that God tapped us on the shoulder and revealed to us our sin. We forget what it was to sit long hours at night reading the Word because you couldn't get enough. We forget what it was like to desire to be in the presence of God. We forget what it was like to have that new birth experience where everything was so new and fresh. Then we get old and comfortable and we just know it all and we expect, to, oh, I've heard this, he's not going to bring anything I've never heard before and, and uh, I already know it all anyway. Do you know that a lot of people are leaving churches today because they've heard it all? It's true. We've forsaken their first love. If we've heard all that man has to say, let's plug into the Word of God. Let's plug into prayer and see what God has to say. Amen? Amen. So it's vitally important for us. They were called to return. They were called to repent, to go back and do what it was they were doing before. And we have to do the same thing. We've got to get a hold of the heart of the Father. And if we don't, the lampstand can be removed from the presence of God. I'm going to ask you a question. Is it true that people are gathering in churches all over today where some of them the lampstand has been removed and there is no sense of the presence of God whatsoever in the service? Usually you're going to find these churches to be overly religious, overly compromising, whatever it may be, but they're not teaching and preaching truth and they're not receiving truth. They're not open to hear from the voice of God. And so what happens is when you're not open to hear from the voice of God, you want to do the work, but you don't want to listen and you don't want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What happens is, is a church becomes very busy, but very empty. And what happens is our busy hands become more important than our listening ears. And once our busy hands become so important, Our listening ears shut down. We don't even want to hear God anymore because we can do the church thing really well. I don't know about you. I don't want God removing our church or my life from his presence. So for those of us that are struggling, those of us that are struggling with our devotional time, those who last week raised your hand and said, Pastor, I'm working on it. Can anybody say, Pastor, I raised my hand last week, but this week was better? Come on, testify, somebody. All right, not as many hands went up as they went up for repentance last week, but that's okay. It's getting better. I encourage you to press on. If you read one more time this week than you did last week, you're doing better. I commend you on that. But keep working, amen? But there's a promise of hope. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Listen, if you will connect to Christ, you're going to have to not work hard. You're going to have paradise of God. You're going to have peace, and you're going to have the tree of life. So just continue to connect to the one that gives eternal life. Secondly, what does he say about the persecuted church? The persecuted church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. You see the, you see the, uh, the cycle here? If you have an ear to hear, it tells us we have a choice. Are you listening? Are you listening to what God says? Jesus warned his disciples. He said, look, people are going to hate you because of me. You are going to be persecuted. I love it when he told Peter that he's going to be bound and led away where he didn't want to go. And he said, well, what about John? What about him? Jesus said, what's it to you if he lives until I return? He's going to live till you return. I don't know. People say, Pastor, why is it that bad things happen to good people? Because they're people. Doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. Bad things are going to happen. Amen? That's just the way it is in life. Sometimes you can't help it, and, and that's just the way it is. We live in a fallen world, and there are many different levels and forms of persecution. Some of you may be going through it right now to some extent. We don't understand persecution here in our country, but places like Iran and Syria and portions of Iraq still and portions of China and North Korea, they get it. They understand the type of persecution that the disciples, the apostles had to endure. They understand. You and I, we consider an indirect statement on Facebook to be persecution. (laughs) this person knows who it's for (laughs) talking about Jesus on their Facebook page all the time I'm sick of hearing about your Jesus my response to all of them is unfriend me I thought we was friends just kidding we get all upset here in America we're so soft man they looked at me they looked at me pastor Okay, what did they look at? How did they look at him? Well, I know what they were thinking. Listen, folks, I don't want to belittle what, anything that you're going through, but really and truly, most of anything we endure here is soft. It's pretty light. But I do want to encourage you. If you are facing persecution because you love Jesus, press on. That's what Jesus was telling them in Smyrna. He said, look, you know, you're going to have to deal with some of this stuff. And, and people say, I, I, I don't understand. If God knows, why is he allowing me to go through this? Well, think of Job. <laughs> Job was a righteous man. Job loved God. And God says, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he set limits and boundaries on what Satan could do. But darn it. Why'd you do that to me? God's got his plan, and God knows what he's doing. We have to let God figure that one out. Amen? But here's some some encouraging thoughts throughout this book, uh, throughout this letter, that that Jesus says that if you're going through some persecution, that you can find some good things. One other thought on persecution. Peter looks at Jesus, and he goes, (laughs) Jesus says, Hey, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. (laughs) 
Wait, what? You didn't tell him no? <laughs> Wait, you didn't stop him? You prayed for me. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Sometimes God is developing something internal in us by allowing our temporal lives to be afflicted a little bit. And Jesus said, it's going to be all right. I prayed for you. And even encouraged him and said, when you return. Amen? So, so Jesus knows the end from the beginning. But as we look at this, based on what was read, God knows. If you are suffering for doing the right thing, number one, God knows. One of the lies the enemy wants to tell you if you're being persecuted, the voice of God wants you to know that he knows. He sees. He hears. He knows what's happening and what's taking place. He knows what's been said. He knows what's been done. He knows how bad it hurts. He knows who they've threatened. Okay? He gets it. So why do I say this? Because the enemy wants you to believe that you're alone, that nobody cares, nobody sees, that God is asleep, that God's not watching, God's not aware, God's not concerned. Those are all false statements. God knows. Secondly, these people who are facing persecution are storing up for themselves treasure in heaven where rust and moth do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. They got it. They understood it. I want to encourage you. That if you are being persecuted for your faith, what you are enduring right now, you're enduring because there is an enemy that hates you and wants you stopped. Keep going. Don't stop. These people invited the onslaught of the enemy because they were obedient to Christ. And the enemy doesn't like giving up ground that he had once possessed. So there will come a time for you when you will come into full contact with the enemy. There will come a time... If you don't run face-to-face, Pastor Mark used to say this all the time, if you don't run face-to-face with the devil every now and again, it's probably because you're going the same direction. we got to make sure that we're obeying Christ, and if we do, we will run into the adversary. So they were told to not fear, to endure, and that there was an end and there was a reward for those that overcome. Time out. What? Jesus, why don't you just remove it? I would encourage you not to be afraid. These things were said so that they would not be afraid. God wants us to understand that the one who has risen from the dead sees what we are going through. Fear is connected with a lack of faith. While he is not rebuking them for a lack of faith, he is encouraging them to have faith in his sovereign power. We don't need to be afraid any more than the disciples needed to be afraid in the boat, in the water those two different times. We don't need to be any more afraid than Peter and John were when they stood before the Sanhedrin and they said, you decide whether it's better for us to listen to God or to you. They knew there was persecution coming, but they obeyed. And persecution did come and they rejoiced because of it. And then we saw Paul and Silas in chains singing and worshiping in the minute. Listen, folks, we see this over and over and over. Be encouraged no matter what it is that you're facing. We need to see the enemy for who he is. There was a reference made to the devil. Jesus said, the devil will have you thrown into prison. (laughs) Okay, so do you think that they all sit there and waited for a guy with a red cape and plastic horns and tights on to show up at their door? I'm the devil, and I'm going to throw you into prison now. 
what Jesus was doing was saying, hey, if you're going through persecution, you cannot get hung up on being angry at people. Why am I saying this? The devil's going to have you thrown into prison, not that guy. This guy is under the influence of the enemy. What is happening in your life? If you are being persecuted, this is the voice of God to you. If you are being persecuted for your faith, it's not because of people. It's because there's an enemy that hates you. Don't get caught up in this person or that, because what it does is it makes it personal, and then you begin to hate people. All they are is people that are being led by the God that they serve, the one of this world. The prince of the power of the air, our adversary, the devil. So Jesus, it was most likely a leader that was going to have them thrown into prison, but Jesus said it was the devil. It's the devil doing the work. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Just as the child of God should give credit to Christ for the work done through his or her life, so should we be able to accredit the works of lawlessness in the lives of others to the influence of the lawless one. I'm going to say it again. Soak this in. Just as when we do something for Christ, we step back and we say, all glory to God. Pastor Bob, that was wonderful. That was an awesome service. All glory to God. But for the grace of God, that's not me. I know nobody's going to say it today because I'm really jacked up today. (laughs) But then when somebody does something that's evil, we just step back and say, well, that's just a horrible person. All glory to their God. (laughs) There's an enemy there that is influencing lives to attack. This whole ISIS business in the Middle East... (laughs) There is a spirit behind it. Amen? Amen. There's a spirit behind it. And it is demonic. And it is the devil. If a person only saw the people doing it, missionaries could never reach out to them or ever lead any one of them to Christ. We cannot take our eyes off of the spiritual truth of what's taking place behind the scenes. The other thing Jesus told him, he said, there's an end to your suffering. It limited it to 10 days. And there have been times in Scripture that God set tables for his people to have so they would not lose hope. For example, Israel was told by Jeremiah that their bondage in Babylon would only last for 70 years. You say, Pastor, when is this ever going to end? I would say, have you asked God? Ask him. He may give you an answer and he may not. He may tell you 10 days, he may say 10 years, and he may say, like he told Paul, my grace is sufficient. But ask and see what God says. Love the life to come more than the life you lived. He encouraged Smyrna to live in absolute surrender, completely empty of self, laying everything down, even their lives if necessary, and they would be given something of greater worth than this life. I can't tell you whether or not something will end in death, but I can tell you to commit to Christ no matter what. And Jesus' introduction confirms his benediction. Look at it again. Has he introduced, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. 
when you're dealing with a persecuted church, he said, look, I've been persecuted. I died and I came to life again, right? So then he goes on, look how his benediction is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. The one who was persecuted, died, rose again, promises eternal life to those that are enduring persecution. In other words, if you're being persecuted, there is an end. There is an end. Even if they take your life, there is a hope that you will have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lastly, this morning, last church I'm doing today. We've seen the church that's forsaken their first love. We've seen a church that's dealing with persecution. And now we see a church that's struggling with compromise. What is it that Jesus would say to those who are compromising? Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Again, probably leadership. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrifice to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. I've had a couple of people ask me, Pastor Bob, what are the Nicolaitans? Nicolaitans, I don't know. There's a lot of assumptions, but the name Nikolai uh, talks of oppression and domination. It's people who have intermingled uh, occultic and paganistic uh, worship and religions, probably into Judaism and Christianity as well, who were compromised on every front. This is an assumption. This is by people who have studied this out and made a lot of different connections. You drive yourself crazy looking for all the connections. But ultimately, the most important thing is, is that these people were their practices were hated by God. <laughs> right? You know it's possible for your practices to be hated by God? God didn't have anything to commend the Nicolaitans for. He couldn't stand their practices. And he commended the churches that hated their practices. But I just said that because I know people were probably saying, who's the Nicolaitans? I've never heard of them. So there you have an answer of some kind. Take it or leave it. Probably leave it, but whatever. Jesus commends this church for their faithfulness when you see that there are some who have given themselves over to sexual immorality. Interesting. There are some that have given themselves over to sexual immorality in this church. And he's telling them, hmm, there's some things I commend you for, but yet you have a percentage of your church that are giving themselves over to sexual immorality. It was a warning. 
Let me just say this. I don't know if you know this, but uh, sexual immorality is a plague in America. It's a plague. If you don't believe me that it's a plague, all you have to do is go back the story I'm going to reference in Balaam's day when Balaam, uh, Balaam was told to curse Israel by Balak. And Balaam went to curse Israel, and he couldn't. And he told Balak, he said, I can't curse them. I can't curse those who God has blessed. And then uh, he, he does it again, and he said, I can't do it. I can't do it. But ultimately what happens, you have to read multiple places in the Bible to gather this, but ultimately what happened is, is Balaam told Balak, he said, send your women down to their men. Let them intermarry and let them lead them away into idol worship and sexual immorality. And then God cannot bless them. I can't curse them, but they will curse themselves through sin. And then that's happening somewhere between the chapter uh, where it's talking about Balaam and then the next chapter, it's talking about the plague of sexual immorality through Israel. The King James Version called sexual immorality a plague, meaning it's contagious. That if you allow it in and you don't discipline it and you don't deal with it and you don't call it out, it will spread. 100% guaranteed. It'll spread through your family. It'll spread through your children. It'll spread through the church. And even though, man or woman of God, you have a small percentage in your life of lust or an inkling for something else, I'm telling you, if you don't rip it out, it will destroy you. It will grow. You see, let me just say this about God. God loves you and I too much to only commend a church for their good things or an individual for their good things and ignore something like sexual immorality or an area of personal compromise in our lives. He will call us out. Loves us too much. Let me just say this. He will never, everybody say never, never. under any circumstance will God ever condone any form of sexual morality. If a preacher gets up and tells you that some form of sexual immorality is okay, he is a liar. He is not a prophet of God. If somebody in our culture gets up and says it's okay, he's a liar. If somebody on TV wearing more money in front of the camera than I have in my bank account tells you, that this sexual morality is bad, this sexual morality is bad, but this isn't. He is a liar in a speaking the voice of the enemy and not the voice of the Spirit. Amen. And if you don't know what sexual morality is at this point, go home and read Leviticus chapter 18. You figure it out. If you are dealing with compromise... If you are dealing with compromise in your life and sin in your life, God's not going to just commend you on areas and then tell you to ignore the other. He's going to call you to repent. And repent means you turn away. And I mean completely turn away from it. 
The only scripture you're going to find in the word of God where we're supposed to flee. We're supposed to stand against the enemy. We're supposed to do this. My wife, my precious wife reminds me of this all the time. We stand on all things. And when doing all we have with the full armor of God, we stand. Except for sexual immorality. Scripture says to flee. Flee. Flee the evil desires of youth. Flee sexual immorality. Run, little boy, little girl. Do what Joseph did, except remember your coat when you leave. Amen? You've got to run. Get away from it. Repent. Don't come back. We're all guilty of it. Myself included. Had a lustful heart for a long time. So God purged me. He can and he wants to purge you. And then keep it in check. But we can't repent today and then two weeks, two years, five years down the road repent of what we repented of before and go back. That's not repentance. It's called backsliding. It's called sin. God wants us to stop with the compromise. And if we do stop with a compromise, if Alyssa would come, we're going to close because I'm... (coughs) Bless your hearts for listening. Isn't it awful? (laughs) If you are dealing with compromise in your life, you know what it is. You know what it is. You already know what it is. God's already pointed it out to you. It bothers you. And if it doesn't bother you anymore and you already know it's sexual immorality, you better be concerned. If you're in an adulterous relationship and it doesn't bother you anymore, you better be concerned. If you're flirting online with with men or women and, and it's not bothering you, you don't feel the least bit guilty about it, there's a major problem. If you're having sex outside of a marital relationship in any fashion, any form of it, folks, that's compromise. And if you're comfortable and okay with that, that's a problem. God says, if you don't deal with these things, if I don't deal with them as a pastor, and if you don't deal with them in your personal life, he will remove us from his presence. But there is a promise that he will give us some of the hidden manna Look at that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. Do you know that God wants to give us a pure new beginning? Gosh. A pure new beginning. How many of you are grateful for new beginnings? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for a pure new beginning. I says, if you just stop that stuff, I'll give you a new beginning and I'll give you the hidden manna. I don't know what the hidden manna represents, but apparently it's not just something that's for everybody. It's hidden. And so oftentimes with sexual immorality, people are looking for a rush or looking for the new thing or whatever. But reality is that God says, I've got something special for you if you will stop it. Just stop it. 
It's the hidden manna. It's a hidden sustainment. You will be able to overcome. I will strengthen you in your flesh, in your spirit to overcome your flesh. It's a hidden manna. There will be a way. I have so many young people. Pastor Bob, I can't do it. I can't, I just can't, I just can't do it. You can. Because God will enable you to do it. And to do things right. And if you fell down, if you messed up, get up, man. He's got a new name for you. He's got a new stone. He's got, he wants to make a new beginning for you. That's what our God's about. It's about new beginnings. And then give you the sustaining power to overcome. That's the hidden man. So this morning we've addressed those who have kind of maybe done the work but have forsaken their first love. We've addressed those that are facing some persecution. And we've addressed those that are dealing with some compromise in their lives. Listen, we all have dealt with compromise in our lives on different levels. That's what this walk of repentance is all about. We have to see it and repent of it. As a pastor, I don't stand here as a man that's perfect, that tries to judge you or anything else. I'm standing here as a man that's real and honest and saying, look, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. You can start again. And God can honor you and show honor to you. And you can honor God in that relationship and to start over. Folks, it can happen. I don't know where you fall in all of this. I don't know where it is that the Spirit has spoken to your heart. But I'll tell you what I'm not going to do today. I'm not going to have you come up front and I'm not going to lay hands on you. I love you too much to give you this. This is horrible. But I am going to pray over you. Okay? And don't think I'm rude if I don't shake your hand. It's because I love you. I don't want you to get sick. Normally I want to impart something to you, but not today. Jesus. Father God, we just come to you. Would you just lift your hands all over this place?